0: The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief, and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical the operative word being recovering sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life so grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith why do we call it a brew pub? because we like to hang out in them at least metaphorically a pub is a great place to let your hair down share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp, and today we have a very special guest who is an author, podcaster, peacemaker, and happy heretic, Keith Giles. Welcome to the Spiritual Brew Pub.
2: Michael, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be on the podcast and looking forward to the conversation.
1: Yes, I am too. Uh, Here at the Spiritual Brew Pub, we are a safe haven for restless or ex-evangelicals, anyone questioning conservative Christianity and anyone seeking a fact and history-based spirituality. So I'm really excited you're on with us, and I'm also looking forward to our conversation. But as my listeners know, I like to tee up our guests <laughs> giving a little background on what we have in common and our respective journeys. So Keith, I understand you're a former evangelical like me and also a former Southern Baptist. Is that right?
2: <clears throat> yes, I'm guilty on guilty as charged on both counts. Also a former <laughs> counts. Uh, uh, also a former licensed and ordained Southern Baptist minister. Um yeah. So, yeah, right, don't, right. don't claim those anymore.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, of course, I'm a former evangelical, but I'm also what you might call a Northern Baptist. <laughs> mm. Mm. Uh, went to a Baptist church in New England for many years. And, and you were also in the Vineyard Movement for a while, I understand, which which I was a part of as well.
2: Yeah, and, there's a lot, of, a lot of similarities there. That's right. Yeah,
1: right. And uh, you're a former pastor. I'm a former missionary uh, we both had very similar deconstruction and reconstruction experiences, but I have to admit, you've written a lot more books than me <laughs> about the experience, <laughs> and we're going to get into that, but uh, Keith has got a great series of books, as mo- uh, among others, uh, what, what, what I call the Jesus Un-series, uh, Jesus Unbound, Jesus Untangled, for example, uh, and we'll, we'll get into some of those uh, questions about those books in a little while. But I also admire you for your compassionate outreach and peacemaking practices, and um, and one of your podcasts is called the Peace Catalyst, and we'll talk about that. And then finally, um, I can relate to that because I've been involved in international development work, and uh, an organization called Rotary, Rotary International. And then one more thing I found out about you is, you know. In our journeys, we both went off and got day jobs instead of ministry jobs for a while, and you worked for a a Microsoft cloud service provider, I understand, and I work for one of uh, a similar company uh, right now. So I was very, I was really surprised that we actually worked for the same type of company for, for several years.
2: Yeah, now that was a shock. Yeah, uh, we, you and I talked earlier, and it was when we realized that, it was like, wow, that is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, uh,
1: right. Yeah. So anyways, um, so I wanted to get started with, you know, I love stories. We love stories on this podcast. I wanted to ask you to get started. What got you into the evangelical movement and the Southern Baptist Baptist Church?
2: Wow. Well, well um, I, it was, you know, probably wasn't, it wasn't my conscious choice so much. Uh, I was very young. And so I think I, the path we took to kind of end up, my family took to kind of end up where we did, um, my mom and dad, I was born in Tennessee my parents were born in Tennessee. Um, when I was around second grade, we moved to, uh, Eagle Pass, Texas, very small border town. And my dad worked across the border in Mexico doing some manufacturing. And, um, But even before that time, so like kindergarten, first grade, I was all, we didn't go to church. So we were, um, you know, we weren't really sort of quote unquote Christians, I guess, at that point. Um, But I, even as a young kid, I was always asking my parents questions about God and things like that. And so I I think I'm assuming that probably had something to do with it. But when we ended up moving to Texas, we started sort of looking for churches. So I guess they were recognizing I had questions about God and all this stuff. So, and, uh, you know, hey, we need to be going to church or whatever so we uh we went to met we visited a methodist church for quite a while i remember that we uh, almost became mormons for a, a very brief time and thank god that mm-hmm. didn't work out and um <laughs> and then somehow we ended up with this little thing called the free was called the lighthouse free will baptist church it was not a southern baptist church at the time but it was a Free Will Baptist church, and um, that's kind of where it all kind of clicked. Where my, my myself and my parents made professions of faith, and we were baptized all three of us together, and which is kind of a cool thing. And um, so that was kind of my first sort of step into Christianity specifically. We were we were Baptist, so I guess we thought we were Baptist. And then fast forward a little bit, we ended up moving to El Paso, Texas, and we ended up going to a Southern Baptist church uh, here in El Paso, Texas, and you know, over probably another decade of going to that church or so. Um, By the time I was like 18 or 19, um, I ended up getting licensed and ordained at that church. And um, so I guess that's kind of how it happened. It, It was sort of like we meandered our way through Methodist and Mormon territory, free will Baptist and landed on Southern Baptist. And then we just kind of stayed there.
1: You said you got ordained at what age?
2: You know, I think it well, let me see now. It wasn't that early. I was I was volunteering at the church probably right. okay. like 18, 19. Yeah. But probably got licensed entertained, or ordained um 23 or 24, I want to say. So, yeah. it was right okay. of, yeah, I was fairly young.
1: Fairly young, right. Right. And that's it reminds me that you you're also you were involved in youth ministry too and as well as in music uh like on the worship team and stuff like that right
2: yeah well they don't call it worship team in southern baptist circles so i was on (laughs) i was the music minister i waved my arm around and i had a choir i had a choir practice and
1: okay I memorized the contemporary music came later, right? Okay.
2: Right. Yeah, contemporary for us was like the Gaither
1: songbook, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's terrible. <laughs>
2: yeah, it was terrible. But then, of course, I ended up in the Vineyard Movement, and then it was like, you know, wow. Then it was like right. totally. Uh, yeah,
1: the Vineyard all Movement. All worshiping right. and stuff. Exactly. So, I mean, in general, I mean, I, when I tell my story, I say, you know, there's a lot of good things in evangelicalism that um, that drew me in and, and, and helps people. Uh, uh, along with the the things that are let's say the good bad and the ugly so That's right. but uh, what attracted you to evangelicalism
2: well <clears throat> frankly i mean i guess as a young person i just wanted to know god you know what I mean i did have a curiosity and a desire to know more about god and and to know about more about Jesus and um so and initially that was my only real concern um like you said you know as i got older and as i Got licensed and ordained, um, serving on staff at different churches growing up and all of that. Um, and they ended up at the Vineyard Movement. Um, you know, the good things about it, the things I enjoyed about it, I, I, there was a good strong sense of family, um, mm-hmm, at least mm-hmm. at that first uh, little church that I got ordained in. I mm-hmm. uh, felt really connected there, felt really loved there and supported there. And um, when we got involved with the vineyard, one of the things we, my wife and I, were, was doing, and the vineyard is this is a big value for them. We were ministering to the poor in our community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gotta say, this little vineyard church that we helped to plant in Tustin, California, the three and a half years that I that uh, I served there, and I was doing the, what we call compassion ministry, specifically working for with the poor there in the community there and serving them there. I had a an American Express card um, issued from the church direct directly, you know, to their account and mm-hmm. uh, I had it in my wallet and I was free. I was encouraged. I mean, it was at my discretion. If I encountered someone, then they needed to, groceries. We just went, in the, you know, jump in the car. We wouldn't buy groceries. If I was ministering to someone who was homeless and I noticed they didn't have shoes, we go down to Payless, and I buy them some shoes. And I mean, I just did that all the time. That's what I did for, for those three and a half years. And you know what? Not once did anybody in that church, my, you know, my, the other pastors who were sort of over me at the time, not once did they ever come to me and say, Keith, stop it. You're spending too much money on the poor. And I love right. that. That was such yeah, a yeah, beautiful right. and a rare, that was a rare thing. That just doesn't happen. And that was, yeah, very, very and that's
1: excited. the thing. It's, yeah, it's refreshing to hear that story, but it was, it is rare. Uh, I, I can imagine the vineyard, vineyard churches being like that. Um, yes. Although the vineyard I went to wasn't quite that like that, but it, it's, we're certainly open to a lot of things that other more conservative churches were not that's right so um anyways yeah so i mean that those are uh common things that i think people uh reasons why people are attracted to uh uh, any church but in particular evangelical churches i mean the sense of community answering the big questions of life and Mm -hmm. and so forth and um and and you know one of the things that happens is that you get into um uh, service in the church and you you know you're told to you know develop your gifts and and find some place to serve and, and and curious what was your core motivational ability i mean you you were a pastor of course and you were in music but what, what how would you describe your motivational abilities that did that served in church
2: well <clears throat> i mean Early on. Yeah. What I did was I kind of, I did kind of start at the beginning as a music minister and then I did some youth ministry. I didn't really ever feel really super comfortable in either of those roles. I didn't feel like it was a super fit for me, Mm -hmm. but it was, you know, it was a chance to kind of try things out and do some ministry and that kind of thing. Um, and I wasn't a band when I was in college, so I did music in that sense, but it was more like that was my own kind of stuff. Um, but in the church, I really started recognizing a gift for teaching and I really enjoyed teaching the Bible. And, um, even when I was younger, you know, teaching in the youth group and things like that. Um, I really enjoyed opportunities, um, to serve. I really did love, you know, working with the poor there in in Orange County and uh, those kinds of things. So those were the, I guess, the things that sort of pushed my buttons and made me feel like I had a place in the church where I I fit was, was either the teaching or, you know, opportunities to serve and to things serve. like that.
1: Right. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's, it's always, um, some churches do that better than others, but, you know, to, uh, uh, I, I, I was in music ministry and I kind of found a, a niche there for a while, a way to do it. The, the, I played the piano in the bands.
2: Oh, wow. <laughs>
1: And um, um, I just kind of found a way that fit me, um, uh, and but I wasn't, you know, really the style of like standing up and singing, and you know, mm-hmm. we were in charismatic churches. I don't know if you were, had experience in charismatic churches, but a lot of prophecy, a lot of oh
2: yeah, you know. yeah. Oh, the vineyard in the vineyard, yeah, we definitely had. Um, oh, that was well, a of course, of man. course,
1: I, I should yeah. I should have known that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, oh yeah, people, we 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 on Sunday mornings for a while there, we would have there would be a microphone set up on Sunday mornings. And after the worship, if you had a prophetic word during the worship, you were invited to come up. And at first it was an open mic. Like people could just jump up there and say anything. But yeah. after, after a few weeks of that, we realized, Hey, that's not a good idea because we don't know what they're going to say. Yeah, so then it, then it became, yeah. there was a, a pastor would stand there and you have to whisper in his ear first. And then he would say whether or not you were allowed to repeat that into the microphone.
1: That's, um, pretty, that, much, that's pretty common. Yeah. yeah.
2: That was the only way it worked, but even then yeah. it was still kind of weird.
1: Yeah, right. I understand exactly what you're talking about. So, um, you know, you went through these experiences, and at some point, you evolved and began evolving. I assume it was a long process and not overnight.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what were what were some of the red flags that you saw that that got you questioning things and starting to, you know, look mm-hmm. at things differently?
2: Yeah, so that's an interesting question because it's almost to me, in my experience, it was sort of two. Those are two separate things. Like. I saw lots of red flags just being on staff, being, you know, a, a pastor uh, at different capacities at both Southern Baptist, Independent, and Vineyard churches, you know, mm-hmm. probably over like a 20, 25-year period, that just, just things in, in, in the sense of like, the structure was kind of um, not so good. You had a lot of egos battling. You had, um, I remember sitting in a uh, Monday morning staff meeting, you know, after Sunday service, with all these other pastors and the conversation i'm telling you if the church could have heard the way the pastors were sort of um doing a post-mortem on on the sunday morning service i think they would have been appalled i mean the things we cared about right it was more about how many butts were in the seats and how much money did we rake in and um how many you know at the time we were, we were burning cds of the sermon afterwards and you know how many cds were taken at, at the end and um And then, and also targeting, like we literally were told by our leadership to target the most influential, the most, like the entrepreneurs, the sort of young, rich, married couples that came into the church to say, you need to invite them over for dinner and kind of, you know, cozy up to them, let your kids play with them. And then you can recruit them into your ministry, whatever it is you're overseeing. And we need to get them plugged in and get them, you know, invested here. And I just remember after one of those meetings, when we were kind of targeting these who's going to visit this guy who's going to call that guy you know and again these were all the guys that were driving the Lexus and and own their own businesses and things like that right and I just raised my hand and I said I'm just curious at what point are we going to read the names of the the widows and the single moms um, that are struggling working three jobs to pay their bills and they can't afford shoes for their kids to send them to school like who's going to invite them to dinner who's going to ask them how they're doing who's going to check up on them like well, isn't that what we're supposed to do here? Oh man! And oh my gosh, well, you could have heard a pin drop. People were like, "Oh, oh crap!" My.
1: Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what, what was that? The a Baptist church or what kind of a church no. were you describing?
2: No, actually, that was the Vineyard Church that we were the last. Oh, that was the last church I was a part of my before my. We That was leaving, the
1: Vineyard uh, Church. All oh, right. We stepped away Well, yeah, place. I found hmm, it's a very similar. I mean, you know, I find I, I always I like the Vineyard style and everything, but. I, every once in a while, there would be a red flag like that. It was like, oh, actually, they've got the same agenda.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's sort of you know? the, it's the business model of church, to be it's honest. right, and, yeah, right. And I right. don't care what denomination you, you would be speaking of. I, I think you would always be able to if you especially if you're on staff you you know you see things behind the scenes the average person in the pew doesn't get isn't uh yeah
1: i remember yeah yeah and you see this
2: sort of business model of church and it just doesn't it's not very christ-like it doesn't really breed the kind of things i mean for me i just saw these disconnects between like man i'm reading the book of acts and i'm looking at what we're doing and there there is no similarity we're not even close
1: right yeah i I, uh, i i hear you um I mean, I, I really admire John Wimber, but I just remember one time when he said, oh, it's okay, you know, go look and see who's tithing in, in your church and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. check up on people and make sure that, you know, and, and, and that was the business model, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because in order for you to survive, you had to have the, the money coming in in order That's for right. you to grow, et cetera. So um, interesting. Um, uh what about some other red flags? You talked about a article called mm. Embezzlement. Yes. The corporate sin of contemporary Christianity. That must have been a was that like way after or was that a red flag for you at some point and you go, wait a minute, this doesn't align. Yeah. Tell
2: us that about w- that. Yeah, exactly. Well, so this was this was pretty much the thing that kind of pushed me out of uh church as a business model. Um, and church as I know it. So I, I was on staff at that church, and we'd, we'd helped to plant that church, that Vineyard Church in Tustin, and um, like, like I said, a lot of it was good, but I just was slowly noticing these things that didn't seem to fit, and then I came across that article as a, uh, by a guy named Ray Mayhew, uh, and it's like a little 35, 40-page PDF thing I read, and my wife and I read it, and it just really resonated with us. And it was look—it was basically a look at starting from church history, starting in the book of Acts, going through the early first, second, third century of the early church, and documenting how caring for the poor was part of the DNA of the early church. And we were like, yes, this is exactly what we feel called to. Um, and it, at the time, we were even already feeling called to start a church. Uh, and um, we really felt like if we're going to plant a church, we want it to look like this, that we would give everything away. Uh, to the poor and we wouldn't keep money for salaries or buildings or anything like that. And we ended up eventually doing that. But, but the red, the final straw for me was, you know, as I'm reading this, this uh, article, which just blew my mind, I'm like, yes, this is it, man. This is the missing key, the missing piece. Yeah. Right. I shared it with um, my fellow pastors hoping, you know what, that if they read it and they come back with the same kind of attitude, the same reaction that I had, then I would think, okay, this can work, right? We're on the yeah, same page. Right. Right. But instead, they came back and they were like, no, this guy doesn't get it. He doesn't understand how things work. You could never run a church like that and blah, blah, blah. And I looked at them and that's when I knew I need to go because <laughs> we are not on the same page. And if they could read the same thing I read and they didn't even have a little bit of like, man, that was cool. Then I need to go ahead and follow this other. Wow. Is that the direction.
1: vineyard church that you,
2: when you Yes, that? yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, yeah, I I can see that happening. Um, You know, it's the business model of church and, uh, you know, I mean, part of the issue and we might end up talking about this is that the model of modern church is not the model of the New Testament gatherings. (laughs) <laughs> of course there's a disconnect right yeah you know yep. i I, re- I read most of that article i mean i skimmed it I, frankly but i read a lot <laughs> of it and it and it's great i mean it's mm. like wow i mean it total, totally totally puts a whole new spin on what this gathering of people who follow jesus were doing i mean yes. and and it's and, and they weren't it wasn't institutional it was focused on helping the marginalized and yeah. the poor and, and the uh, sick and, and uh, the, you know, the ones who were forgotten and so forth. So um, it's, it's amazing. Um, but the, you know, the business model must go on because people think church <laughs> is institution. So yeah, because, you know, they would lose their jobs if, if they had to change the model to something where you really don't, you'd have to be, you'd have to have a day job, right? Right, right. And
2: that's what I did. So, so when Wendy and I left that church and, and followed that that calling that we felt to start a church that looked more like that, where we would give everything away, all the offering would give away to the poor and the community and people in need in, in, in our community. You know, the only way to make it work was, well, we'll meet in people's living rooms and um, I'll just get a day job, you know, like everybody else. And so that's actually when I ended up at in Ingram Micro.
1: Yes, right. Um, and
2: I worked for them for 10 years. And oh, wow, uh, that's what we did. Years. Okay. Uh, I work for them in their uh, marketing, in-house marketing department as a creative copywriter. And and we did this house church thing where people who kind of shared the same kind of vision and same desire just came alongside us. And it's the best thing I've ever done with the word church on it, Michael. It was like so, so beautiful, so simple. When you take money out of the equation, when you take sort of that hierarchical structure and the business model out of the equation and it's just people, they love Jesus they love one another. They they care about people in their community. They want to express that in tangible ways. That's all it was about. And it, for like, we did that for, I think, 11 years. So how many engaged.
1: people were in this gathering, let's call it?
2: So, you know, early on, we probably, I'd say within the first couple of years, we were at about, we were almost, we were too big, to be honest. We were probably like 30 or more people. And that was, families with children so actually once you put in once you add the children in 30 felt like 80 um you know in 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 the house you know 30 people in the house at a time and like half of them are kids little kids you know it was uh, a little chaotic chaotic that's um and we went through phases i mean over the 11 years you know you had families who would come families that would leave some of them moved some of them actually went and started other house churches in their communities um but by the end of it so i'd say like the last three or four years we were together it was my well, last three years. It was, it was, um, my wife and I were the old people in the church, and everyone else were like millennials, singles, young, mm-hmm. young kids, and it was the best. Oh, that was, it was like it, all the other stuff we had gone through up to that point was like it paid off. And That's it was nice. so beautiful, uh, having these young kids in there, and they were so excited about Jesus, so passionate, and, um,
1: so, and very so simple. It was just great. So, we're, um, is it true that all, all, all the, giving in the church went to some kind of a uh outreach to the poor or what was that like
2: yeah absolutely so we had actually started something when we were still at that vineyard church before we left that was a a motel church um there was a motel in Santa Ana California where we discovered a whole lot of families uh were living in these motels um some of them for generations and so yeah so that was a shock and so we started doing this motel originally it was just like a once a month we would do this little ministry where we'd bring a bounce house and we'd serve hot dogs and have games for the kids and all that and then we ended up partnering with Saddleback Church the yes that Saddleback Church you mean Rick Warren Warren. yeah the biggest church in Orange County partnered with the smallest church in Orange County and we did this little thing called Motel Church where every Sunday there was a in the back parking lot of this motel um so it was our church saddleback and a couple other churches came and volunteered and each church sort of took a sunday Mm -hmm. and they would show up serve breakfast preach a message you know just kind of be there so every sunday there was there was a service going on in this church in this motel and so when we left to start our uh, house church we carried that ministry over into our house church ministry so a lot of the offering was going probably say the majority of the offering we were receiving in our house church was going to buy groceries For and to buy the you know the breakfast stuff for that motel church, and um, but then near like I said near the last three or four years of that of the house church, we also added um, an outreach to there was a homeless encampment at the time over by Anaheim Stadium, Mm -hmm. and uh, where the Angels play, and which was only a few blocks away from my house, and so we could see them right there you know you could you couldn't miss them, so our house church started and it was cool because it was spontaneous the kids in our house church were like you know what let's just have let's just have church sunday over there with mm-hmm. with those people so like all right so we would go over there and we'd bring them you know coffee and donuts and danishes and if they you know they told us they wanted batteries and socks we would bring that and bottles of water and all kind of just we would hang out with them do worship with them pray for them and we just started doing that uh, as well so a lot of the offering some of it started going then to help uh, people at the um a tent city right there at Anaheim stadium for a while. Um, and then, you know, there's always various things. So those are the, the things we were doing on a regular basis, but you know, now and again, somebody would come to the church and say, Hey, my, uh, I know this family and the guy lost his job and they're going to lose their house, you know, and we, we check and see, Oh, Hey, there's money in the basket and Hey, everybody cool with this. So, Hey, we, we, make a donation to it, to people specific people that we knew that were in need at different points as well. Right. Right. Um, and I gotta say, you know, we weren't that large. So, right. So anywhere from say 15 to 20, 30 people, you know, kind of, but I'm telling you the, it is really true that when people can, can connect at every penny that they stick in that basket, they actually can see the faces of the people that they're feeding and helping. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, they become hilarious givers. They become joyful givers. They, because like they know this is exactly, this is the only thing it's going to, right. And they, they, you kind of get addicted to that. Like, this is awesome. Who else yeah, can be right? Close, right? right. Well, this is not uh, going
1: for the tr- <laughs> to the church pews and the new addition.
2: Yeah, it was great. That, Our
1: salaries. So
2: uh, I, I mean, I kept the books for a while. Cause anybody who wanted to look at it, that was part of the transparency, you know, you, anybody at any time, they wanted to see how much money was coming in the basket. Where was it going? Uh, I had kept, a, I kept the books and you could see it. So every year I would do a um, sort of an end of year thing for the church. I'd say, hey guys, we took in this much money and we used this much money to help the motel or, the, or whatever we did. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, it was thousands of dollars, man. Just, just a couple of families meeting together um, the way we were meeting. And it, I mean it was I, I was shocked I was surprised just how much we were able as a small little church how much we were able to to sort of you know raise and spend and share in the community it was pretty amazing
1: that, that's really remarkable I, I'm impressed that you you did that and and that there were there was was such a church like that and, and that even settled back uh, took part in it I, I just remember um, uh, having that kind of um desire to do, to do a lot more of, of, of work in among the poor. I joined a, uh, organization called food for the hungry, which was an evangelical aid agency. And, um, that was the first time I went overseas, uh, and I went, did that. It was also very evangelical though, but, you know, wanting to convert people and stuff, but, right. but, um, uh, what I discovered, uh, is like there's, there was a kind of an arm of the evangelical church, like, you know, Ron Sider, rich Christians in an age. Oh,
2: of yeah. Oh, my God. That
1: book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he stirred a lot of, uh, uh, stirred up a bee's nest really with that book. But, you know, there was an arm of the church that was like, that was trying to do that. But, but it was, but in my experience, most of the churches that I went to, it was like pulling teeth to get people to give like that and, and, and to, and to, to adjust their, you know, their ministry or whatever to do what you were just talking about. So that's very interesting. Um, uh, I think you mentioned once when I talked to you that one of the deconstruction events in your life was talking to, uh, was it Todd Hunter of Vineyard?
2: Uh, Oh, yeah. Tell
1: tell us about that story.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, that was the other major, um, what I would call sort of my deconstruction event um, or events, plural, in my life. So Um, The first one was that Ray Mayhew article. The second one, and these were almost back-to-back. It was like a one-two punch. Um, Mm -hmm, Right about mm -hmm. the same time, um, yeah, I was writing for Relevant Magazine at the time. I had started a little column with them called Subversive, and it was only for their website. This was an online column I started with them. And um, my first interview with that column was Todd Hunter, who I I had known from the Vineyard. He was the Mm – yeah, he had been – the national director of churches, basically, the church planting guy for Vineyard for a long time. And I knew him. I respected him, looked up to him. And um, since I knew him fairly well, I, I asked him, hey, could you could I interview you for this relevant magazine thing? He's like, sure. So anyway, it was on this uh, interview, my very first interview. Uh, was he, t- was
1: his... he still uh, heading up the Vineyard? No. So at
2: this point, I think he had left and he had mm-hmm. started, this, uh, well, he started this little house church thing also of his own. I think by that time, and he had, at that point, I think there was a ministry called Alelon, mm-hmm. which is a very emerging church thing. This is during the emerging church you know movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so I think at the time, yeah, he he had moved away from Vineyard, and he had moved on to some other things. So anyway, I, I asked him on this interview. I said, "Hey, Todd, what, you know what, in your opinion, is the um, the biggest problem facing the church in America today?" And his answer blew my mind. I was not expecting this at all. And what he said was, well, Keith, I think the biggest problem with the church in America today is that fundamentally um, we misunderstand the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, because I think you know most Christians think that the gospel is about saying a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. And I was dumbfounded because, again, I was licensed and ordained as a Southern Baptist minister. I had served in churches for over a decade at that point. And that was the first time anybody had told me that. And I was like, what? And so he's like, yeah, you know, the gospel is what Jesus says it is in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus says the good news, the gospel is um, that the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God is within you. And you could, you could live in and experience the rule and reign of God in your life right now. It's not something you have to wait until after you're dead.
1: And the and the rule and reign of God is a loving yes. God. Yes. Right?
2: Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. I guess one, I guess.
1: one who's not so concerned about religion and yeah. doctrine, right?
2: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think I didn't get all that in, in that in that conversation, but eventually, yes, right. I came to figure out that that's yeah. what it, that's what it was. But right. but for me, the biggest shock was just, oh my gosh, like I thought. I thought the gospel was about going to heaven when I die, just saying a prayer. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, it's not. It's really about who is Jesus and how can I follow Jesus in my actual life? And I had not been doing that. And so that was a major shift for me. And I would say that um, that sort of rearranged the spiritual furniture in my heart and my mind and the ripples that kind of came out of that realization, that shifting of my paradigm um kind of created all the other deconstruction that came later you know i because because of that and began because almost immediately my wife and i stepped out from under traditional churches we started this house church thing which was not under the covering of any denomination we were just a bunch of christians who love jesus meeting with some other christians who love jesus we had no no 501c3 we had no doctrinal covering or anything like that um all of those things combined uh, it was suddenly like wow I what else am I wrong about right what else have I misunderstood about this whole that's what that's
1: what happens it's like an onion you unpeel one thing and you think (laughs) wait a minute if this is true if I if I was wrong about that and this is true then that affects this and then you start looking at that and then that onion layer goes and then you (laughs) go to another layer and so forth (laughs) yeah so uh you you're you're a prolific writer you've got all these great books i got one in front of me called jesus unbound liberating the word of god from the bible i think that's a great subtitle but um uh you know I, i think you've really hit on something some of your other titles jesus untangled jesus unveiled um you know what what uh How did you know these these red flags and all these revelations start morphing into like, okay, I'm now I'm actually feel like I'm an authority. I can actually write a book about this, Mm. not just questioning and you know, like I used to go through this all the time and go, who the and tell myself, who am I to question the Bible? (laughs) But when you do a little (laughs) research, look into history, you know, and and really dig into things you start to think wait a minute i am someone who can question these things i mean how did that happen for you and 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 what started this jesus un series of books yeah
2: well i'll be i'll, I'll, I'll be honest i don't think i ever felt like i had sort of the authority to say something like oh now I, i'm a yeah, i'm an expert on something um but i think though what made me first of all i've always felt like i was a writer i've always wanted to be a writer um that's a whole nother thing but i mean i as a young boy i totally thought my whole plan for my life was i was going to be a science fiction author i thought that's what oh I was. wow that's cool and um <laughs> and uh and i was a creative writing major in college that was my degree was english creative writing and so um so anyway i always enjoyed writing and i've done all kinds of i'd wrote comic books and all kinds of stuff anyway and then um but anyway, so again, again, it was right around the time when I was starting to write for Relevant Magazine, and I interviewed Todd, and so I was already kind of in that mode of writing, sort of uh, articles like that. You know, I started a blog, and um, I just started. Always blogging. starts with a
1: blog. It always
2: starts with a blog, man. <laughs> so I started blogging, um, and then those blogs, really, all I was doing is sort of chronicling my journey. You know, like hey, you know, and then it's more like I would be reading something or studying something. Or listening to something and I would discover something I'd never known before. And I would be like, oh my gosh, I got to tell people. I got I to tell people mm-hmm, about this. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that's really all it was. It wasn't like, let me tell you what's going on. It was like, oh my gosh, everybody, check this out. I can't believe I just discovered this. And so I would blog about it. And so over time, um, for like the first book, I, I self-published like four or five books initially. So the, the first book I saw published was literally just sort of a collection of like the, the 25 or 30 blog posts that I thought were my best Mm-hmm. and after like five or six years of blogging and I, I just threw them together and so published that so then but then other other blog series that I did I was like hey that was a blog series but I could easily turn that into a book so I self-published some books like that and then um when I got to Jesus Untangled which was the first book in that Jesus Un series um same kind of thing I'd, I had done like a 15 12 to 15 part series I think on my blog on on that topic which was crucifying our politics the pledge of allegiance to the lamb and it was about sort of the dangerous toxic relationship between faith and politics and, and my own experiences with that and how that wasn't really such a good thing and um so that blog series i realized i could turn this into a book and uh about that about that time as i was putting that book together um this guy rafael Palindo, uh, who's the publisher for choir publishing uh, came to me to, actually took me invited me to lunch and asked if he if i'd be willing to publish my book with uh his publishing house and initially i was going to say no because uh, i was really happy at the time self so publishing but uh he talked me into it to be honest <laughs> I, okay. he, he answered yeah. every objection and i was mm-hmm. like really well you know what okay well, well i just figured i'll just try it you know let's just yeah. see sure and then right. i published that first book jesus untangled with choir and it was the best thing I've ever done. And I was like, man, I should have done this a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was, that did so well. And it was such a wonderful experience with my publisher. Again, I never set out to write a series. I had no no clue that, you know, a few years later, I'd be sitting on like a six book series. Um, but my publisher, again, was just really he encouraged me. You know, I told him my next book I wanted to write was Jesus Unbound. That's the one you were talking about, about the Bible. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, well, I didn't know I didn't know what I was going to call it but he was like you know why don't we keep in this Jesus un series thing oh, yeah. and uh, we'll keep the covers kind of similar right, design. yeah
1: and, that's a great I, idea yeah it was, uh-huh.
2: it, it was a great it really was it was a great idea and I was like well sure why not and uh yeah it turned out to be a really wonderful uh, yeah because when you read
1: yeah when you read one then you then you're attracted to the others you're like oh wow okay <laughs> yes. and you've got them on on different topics the Bible I think, atonement theory um what are some of the other
2: yeah so i write about uh so i mentioned i wrote about faith and politics uh the bible um the end times the doctrine of hell
1: uh the church right and uh
2: the cross yeah
1: yeah right it's great yeah Mm -hmm. that's very very creative and very effective i think yeah and i'm working on uh, the
2: final book in the series and i am going to end the series with this uh the seventh book and that book is on um it's called Jesus Unarmed, and it's about uh, following Jesus into nonviolence and enemy love.
1: Oh, I'm glad. All right, well, I'll have to. I'll have to maybe. A, a, do I wait for that one before I publish my next book? Because <laughs> I got one on peacemaking too. Oh, really?
2: Right. Oh, that's cool.
1: Right. Yeah. I, the subtitle is something like um, uh, exposing violence and myth in popular theology and uh, reclaiming the path of peace. Oh, that's wonderful. So, yeah. So that's I so mean, I, it's just. Um, I, that's what I love we, you know what I find out Keith is is that when everyone everyone who deconstructs like this, if they really get into it and they really are open-minded about it, we all come to the very similar conclusions uh, and and directions even though we might you know you know express them differently but
2: well, yeah, you're exactly right I, I do think I, I've been really shocked or and, and pleasantly surprised how often. Uh, That's why I love asking people, you know, who deconstructed their story is that there's always two things that happen. There's always, you know, the two elements to their story. Uh, The one element of some elements of their story will be very similar to my own. I'll be like, yep, yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. there's always parts of it that are different. And I love hearing that too. It's like, oh, really? Oh, that's cool. I didn't. And like you said, sometimes we will meander like maybe somebody's first thing is they pulled the thread on eternal torment and then 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 after that it was like the bible and then after that it was the end times and then after right. that it was right. uh, the cross and it doesn't right. you know the different orders and different sort of paths that we right. take but we exactly. a lot of times end up in kind of the same spot
1: yeah that's true yeah I'm always kind of being accused of trying to handle all the topics at once. So (laughs) (laughs) you're going to tackle that too. You're going to tell, that's what David Artman told me. Said, You got a lot of stuff in your books, but to me, it was like, uh, it was like, man, you know, the Bible, I think you you just, if you, if you tackle the Bible, for example, it opens up a whole door, just like, well, the, the end times is in the Bible, yeah. The cross is in the Bible. Everything, you know. So
2: yeah. and honestly, yeah, that um that I always tell people, like, you know, some people ask me, like, well, um it's a series, right? Jesus Unseries, which is the first one, which one should I start with? And they're not sequential. I didn't I didn't write yeah, them. You know, right. You, you could, could start with
1: any one of them, right?
2: You could, but you know what? I do recommend to people, if they haven't read any of them. And they are kind of curious about which one I start with. I recommend Jesus Unbound because it's about the Bible. And I really do feel like it's such a foundational thing. If, you, if you're if you not looking at the Bible um, at least the same way I'm looking at it, you're not going to, It's you're, you're less likely to come to the same conclusions that I'm coming to. In my no, I,
1: I absolutely agree. That's why so, I chose I chose yeah. to buy that one first because of yeah. that very yeah. reason. So um what, why, does, why does history matter? I mean, when we study how people compiled the Bible, how you know, what, what was really going on in the first century, uh, what was the, what's the history of the doctrine of hell? Why, why does all that matter? Why, does, why should we study history?
2: Oh, my gosh, man. I think history is so important. Well, first of all, studying church history, especially if you're going to study, let's say, the early church or um, if you're going to look at how the Bible historically came together, It's going to challenge pretty much, I'd say at least half of the assumptions that you have about all of those topics. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, studying, reading early church fathers, um, like reading the quotes of the early church fathers. I'm talking like pre-Constantine. You know, um, is is so radical. I mean, you're hearing these guys talk about what it means to be a Christian in terms that. just don't hear anyone talking about today and it Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. humbling it's it's uh inspiring Mm -hmm. um when you look at the uh as we already talked about the early church and how radically they cared for the poor in their in their community that was like the dna that's what it was such a big part of what uh the impact that early christians made on the roman pagan society around them was because of that radical you know compassion and love for for the outcasts um, so that's that's a that's a big shock. Um, but it, w- when you look specifically, let's say how the Bible came together. Oh, my gosh, man. I mean, it, I can't I can't not I can't help but laugh when Christians will say, oh, God has protected his canon. I, mean, I want to say which one. Yes, you know, right. like, <laughs> um, there's so many of them. And uh, it, it's, right. it's really it makes it very difficult to sort of repeat these little phrases, these bumper sticker slogans that that we throw around a lot well, I heard all the time from the pulpit about the bible being inerrant and infallible and and protected by god and his spirit over centuries and blah, blah, blah. it's like well that's not what history shows. The history that's shows exactly it was a right. big mess. There was no consensus for the first like 300 400 years um, until they had those councils you know that mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, that constantine yep. decided all of a sudden now we need to know. Like for th- over 300 years no christians felt like they needed to have one official quote-unquote well, Bible. yeah,
1: yeah, they had, um, well, there was this thing called local canon canonosity, yeah. or whatever yes. you call it, where you go to one area and go, oh, you got some scriptures, let me see, and you see, you look at their list of scriptures, and then you go to another area, and they had a different list of scriptures. That's now, right. some of them overlapped, but they weren't saying, oh, you don't have my list, so you're not, you know, a real... That's right church. I mean, right. it, it, was, it was okay to have your own list of scriptures. That's and right. a lot of the scriptures on those lists, of course, didn't wind up in the New Testament.
2: Right. And See, yeah, that's what's so fascinating to me, that exact point. Because like when I was started studying it, I was like, I recognized like, okay, so like, um, you know, Origen had a list. And, you know, on his list, he didn't have James and Revelation and Hebrews, but he did have uh, the Shepherd of Hermas and, yes. and Didache yeah. and, and, and books. We know we don't even know what they are. We don't, even, we don't have copies of them, right? And then you look at the other, this other church father and Tertullian, well, he has a different list and he adds this and takes that out and adds things in you never heard of and takes out books that you think, wait, what? He didn't he didn't have that in his in his bible and his canon and then again like you said what you get is this picture of it didn't really matter to them
1: yeah it didn't matter i mean even the even the gospels the eastern church preferred john and the western church preferred matthew mark or luke right but they weren't like pointing fingers at each other going, oh you're you know you're you're not reading the whole word of God. It's like, That's right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and I got to say, I think the whole canonization of the scriptures was a huge mistake because what it did, whether intentionally, and I kind of think it was intentional, but you know, give them, give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they didn't know this was going to happen, but it, it doesn't matter. Inevitably, this is what happened. Um, that by closing the canon, you basically have said, every, you're saying that everything God ever wanted to communicate to his people he said it two thousand years ago, and he's done. Yes, right, and if it's not right. in that book, and it's not in these specific books that right. we, this little. By the right. way, I mentioned I mentioned in the book Jesus Unbound that that Christians don't realize this, but they have more faith in these unnamed men who who made that decision of what books are in the canon and which ones are out, mm-hmm. and you don't even know their names, and you don't even know what criteria they use to pick which books are in and out. But that doesn't matter to you. You just blindly trust right, those right. those guys. Yep. Knew what they were doing and picked the right thing. But how do yeah. you know that? Right. Right. And, 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 th- but just the fact that you're going to try and say that these are the only things God ever wanted to say to anybody ever, it, it, uh, it was just a bad idea.
1: I yeah. Just- and it, it also, uh, reinforces that, you know, everything is correct in the Bible and it ignores the right. fact that the Bible actually critiques itself. <laughs>
2: That's right. That's the other point. This is the other thing is so many Christians, yeah, they think. That the Bible is uh, of one mind on all these issues, and it really is not. It is a conversation. In fact, if you talk to um, some like, you know, Jewish rabbis and stuff who are like uh, more Orthodox and conservative rabbis, I mean, they'll freely tell you that what they love about the the Hebrew scriptures is the fact that it doesn't have one mind; that it is, a, it is a collection of opinions. Oh, interesting. And okay, yeah, yeah, right. Well, I mean, they that's part of the, that.
1: right, right. There is a yeah, there is a definitely a tradition and in Jewish tradition of like arguing with God, and that's what the scriptures yes. are doing. Are saying God's like this? No, God's like this, and you know, the prophets are critiquing the sacrificial system, and that's
2: right. Oh and, my God. Uh,
1: yes. Uh, Jesus is basically you know critiquing parts of the of the Torah, etc. cetera. Exactly. So, so anyways, um, uh, what about, uh, you know, we, I, what I really try to get a, a handle on, history, not being ignorant of history is one of the problems with the church. But I mean, I, I just wonder what, what do you think, um, why have so many people misunderstood these things? I mean, people go to seminary, they can learn mm. this stuff. Yeah. Why, why is there such a barrier between... That, that, you know, churches can't break through and, and, and have more of this historical background.
2: Well, that's fascinating because you know what? I've heard, um, I've talked to pastors who've gone to seminary and gotten their master's divinity uh, on some of the, some of my books, right? Where I'm kind of going into these topics like hell and the end times and the church and the cross. And, and I'm talking about stuff that I found in my research. And, and I've heard both directions. I've heard some pastors tell me I went, to, I went to seminary, and I didn't know any of this stuff. Like, no one told me any of this wow. stuff. Well, I guess it depends on which seminary you go to.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, some of them
2: That's are just oblivious. They're never All even right. told these things. But I, at the same right. time, I've talked to other guys who are pastors who got their degrees in seminaries. And they said, yeah, you know, we we did talk about that in my classes. But it was either sort of poo-pooed, like we just brushed over it. Like, oh, those guys were wrong. Let's move on.
1: Yes, um, right, right, right.
2: Or, yeah. or it was sort of like, well, yeah, this was true, but like you – you all knew if you were going to become a pastor somewhere, like you could never preach about this.
0: Yes, you're gonna get yes, fired that,
2: if you if you like yeah. talk about this stuff. So yeah. it, it, so you either it's either ignorance because you're either not you're not exposed to it, or right. you are exposed to it, but you recognize that if you don't play the game, you're out yeah. of a job. And yeah. and there's just certain that's things thing. where like you're that, not allowed to talk about this.
1: That's true. And it's the professionalism of the of the whole industry, really, that that harms it. Because, like you said, whoa! If I preach this stuff, I might lose my church, and that's what happens. People that's who right. preach universalism all of a sudden lose half or more of their church. You know, that's so, right. Yeah,
2: that's so exactly right.
1: It's interesting. Yeah, that's that's a very good observation, though. I I, I never I never really could really put my finger on. It. I knew that people that the ones that did know what was going on. That's exactly why they they just don't want to go there, but then. I guess some seminaries just don't go there at all, and they're so conservative, they don't even want to, they that's don't right. want to give it uh, uh, very much uh, credence. Yeah, so, and you
2: know what, I got to say too, though, that I've also talked to so many, um, I started this little thing called Square One a couple of years ago, which is specific. Yeah, that's
1: where I want to go next, so go yeah, ahead, yeah, tell yeah. us about that.
2: Yeah, so, so in, in doing this, I've done this now for about two years, and it's like this 90-day course and community that I put together to help people who are going through deconstruction and kind of Walked them through it. And the, and the goal is to help them kind of figure out their own reconstruction process. Uh, I don't tell them how to reconstruct it, but again, I just give them uh, uh, lay a sort of buffet of options in front of them and let them sort of figure out what works for them. But but as I've been doing this now for two for a couple of years, and I've got um, anywhere from 15 to 20, 25 people at a time going through these 90 day courses. and I've done it now like nine times. Um, you know how many pastors are in these, in these things. And Whoa. some of them are either, some of them are former pastors because they deconstructed and they are like, you know what, I, either they lost their job, they got fired or they realized, you know what, I can't preach this from, the, from the pulpit wow. in, in, you know, anymore. But, um, but so many of them are, are in this deconstruction course, they are deconstructing and they're still in the pulpit. I've had people flat out say, Keith, if my congregation knew that I was in this course, Or that i don't believe in eternal torment anymore or that i don't believe that you know in uh the inerrancy of scripture anymore i would lose my job and so they're they're sort of stuck right you you're Mm -hmm. you're in this place where i gotta pay the bills i gotta take care of my family the only experience i have uh, right uh you know my, my my resume says i've got a masters of divinity from the seminary and i've spent 20 30 years pastoring a church yeah, and right. and walmart it, doesn't care
1: about that what are you going to what are you going to do i mean right. yeah well you might you might get a job at walmart but that's you, about that's it a big yeah. deal <laughs> that's right. not very good that's not a very good job so for someone who's you know gone through a whole career and so forth so um yeah that that's that's amazing so you're you're doing these these workshops called square one back to square one and going over I, i'm actually i'm actually doing the same thing except you're much farther ahead than me i've only i, I haven't even really started yet i've just got i've got some uh i got the bones of, of so a deconstruction workshop mm, we'll have to cool. compare notes but yeah I, i'm very um I'm, I'm uh i'm very impressed with that and uh so what 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 kind of, why should people go to your workshops? What, what's, how does it help them?
2: Right. Well, <clears throat> I guess the first thing is, um, it is a private community. There's a private Facebook community. Um, and there's also the Zoom calls that we do. We do weekly Zoom calls where we get together and and you get to connect with people who are going through the same things you're going through. And I think that's a huge, huge help to people. I've seen that uh, has been a huge part of people's process and their healing and everything. But we, what we do the first, um, so there's 12 sessions. The first six sessions, really, each week, we will um, focus on one aspect of deconstruction, sort of like why is it so painful? Um, how do we deal with forgiveness? Um, you know, how do we, who is Jesus to us? And how can we figure out a sort of an actual historical idea of the real Jesus, um, not the version that we've, Sort of heard and you know created in our own image, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we also go through um, a section also where we talk about how to rewire our brains. Um, which is a really Very interesting. Good. That's Very my favorite good. week. I yeah. love that week. Yeah. Um. And we talk about gratitude. We talk about uh, developing new spiritual practices because see, a lot of here's the thing I've, I experienced, and I know a lot of people experience too. When you when you have deconstructed and and everything, like, well, it's like, well, I don't go to that church anymore, and I don't go to that men's Bible study anymore, and I and I don't attend this home group anymore, and so there's all kinds of things you don't do, and so you've got a great vacuum of like. So you're not doing anything though that is helping you spiritually. Like so, you stop doing the things that you know were connected to that old kind of thing. But like for a lot of people, I, what I want to help them do is figure out like what is it that you can do or that you do already that makes you feel connected to God, that makes you feel fulfilled, that gives your life meaning and purpose. Figure out what those things are and do those things. And you get to decide what that is. Most of the things that we have done growing up, like going to church and Bible studies and men's retreats and whatever, um, are things that people told us, you need to go to this. And if you do, it'll be good for you. And I'll be honest, it didn't really help me for the most part. It didn't really make me feel connected to God. It didn't mm-hmm. feed my soul and give me life. It was just stuff to do.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: now we have this beautiful opportunity if we deconstructed those things and if we if we I've kind of walked away from some of those things. It's like, man, I can do now. I get to decide what it looks like for my spiritual life, right? For my going forward. And it can be things like, you know, watching movies, uh, taking walks in nature, maybe dancing or taking a painting class. Or, I mean, it's, there's so many amazing possibilities and it can be whatever you want to make it. Yeah. Whatever it is that connects you to God and other people, you know, do that. Right. So I kind of walk people through that, um, that whole process. And um, mm-hmm. that's and kind you're of not, you're work. not
1: you're not You haven't discovered the, the the one true model, so you're not promoting no,
2: <laughs> I don't, no, the exactly. new church I, of uh, no. Keith
1: Giles or whatever. No.
2: no, 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 no. And here's the thing, too, by the way. Like, yeah, I, I don't guide them. I'm not steering them in any particular direction. I mean, I've had people come through this course who are atheists, who said, you know, I don't believe in God at all anymore. I'm like, great just figure out what does, you know, make your life meaningful and gives you joy and purpose and do that. Yeah, that's, that's true. Absolutely. Um, yeah. but, it, but part... some people are like, you know what, I've deconstructed these theologies, but I still want to hold on to Jesus. And I'm like, great, then, then let's do that.
1: Right. And that's the um, point. It's like, you need to, you need to t- you need to address all of the, the, whole, the whole spectrum of people. And, um, that's, yeah, uh, that's what I'm trying to do exactly too. I mean,
2: yeah. And then, uh, then that, um, I, then
1: you, you can tell where people have landed after you get to know them, but no, if you, if you're not, you're not saying you have to land, right where i land no that's
2: right. right yeah exactly yeah and then um so i did when i created that first round of square 1 and i put people through it um i initially my plan was you know i want people to go through these 90 day this 90 day course and when it's over i want to say goodbye and we're done like i i really did not want anybody to be like treating keith as their guru oh, and no I, don't to, I don't want i don't want build some kind of a following right so Mm -hmm. I really wanted to be like hey you went through this hopefully you got some tools and resources that helped you now put them into practice and have a great life (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um, that was my intention but you know what there was so people loved it so much and they connected with each other really this is the great thing it's not that they it's not that they had some sort of attachment to me as sort of the answer man they
1: liked the community right yes
2: they connected with each other they were Mm -hmm. like they loved each other it was like they wanted to. They like said, "I." Had people tell me uh, after it was over, like, "We do we have to go away?" I mean, we like talking. <laughs> so I put together. I was like, "Okay, fine." Uh, so I put together Square Two, and I think it's better than Square One. I mean, Square Two is amazing, and so Square Two is only for people that have gone through Square One.
1: Oh, I see.
2: Um, <laughs> and Square Two is. And I'm telling you, man, it's so cool. So um, Square Two, uh, instead of me doing these sort of weekly lectures um, about on these topics. In Square, two, it's me having conversations with people like Brad Jerzak, Brian Zahn, Jim Palmer, Bruxy Cavey, Baxter Kruger, William Paul Young. Um, I mean, amazing. Mark Harris, John Lynch, amazing people. Mm-hmm. And on these different topics, like about how do we approach prayer? What do we do about, like, meditation and silence? And, um, you know, what do we think about sort of worm theology and uh, all these kind of things. And, and these were topics that they had requested. They wanted, more, like, let's let's go deeper into some of these areas. And so Square 2 has been amazing. And then after Square 2 was over, they're like, we still don't want to go away. So I created Square 3. And all that is, is a weekly Zoom conversation. There's nothing else to it. It's just, we just get together uh, every Sunday afternoon, and we just check in. How are you guys doing? What's going on? Any topic you want to talk about, we'll talk about it. And we just kind of, and, and it's growing because you know, every round of square one and two that people go through, they end up landing in square three. Oh,
0: and um, it, Very so cool. that
2: gets that kind of growing. But again, the goal is not for them to sort of treat me as a guru. It's for them to connect with each other and, you know, help each other. Yeah, that's, that's
1: process. great. You know, yeah, for me, um, me and my friends, some of my friends, we deconstructed together, and we just started a uh, pub theology group and
0: <laughs> hanging
1: cool. out hanging out, drinking beer and talking theology and asking <laughs> all those questions and then we found out there was a big movement all across the country even that's doing this and uh, yeah. I, I, the two books the, the the meager two books that I've written both have beer themes so that's, <laughs> that's one of the things I like and cool. uh, uh, so and then also the other thing is I, I you know I, I I tell people you know it doesn't have to be Religious community, or it can be right. secular. I'm in a Rotary Club. I, I'm telling you, the Rotary Club is like their, their motto is service above self. And I mean, it's just amazing. I oh, mean, yeah. You meet people all over the world. They're just, we're doing, I, I'm involved in the international work. And so we just, I, I do more good in the world, I think as a part-time Rotarian volunteer Rotarian than I was as a paid full-time missionary. So, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. There's so many things you can do uh, to serve other people, you know, build up your own skills and, and whatever and make the world a better place uh, than, than just going to church. I mean,
2: absolutely. Yes. And that, that is actually, you're exactly right. And I, I always encourage people in square one, um, We spend a week on talking about this idea of community, and um, and I want to encourage them to do is to look for communities or even create community with other people that isn't based on the need for agreement, um, but is more about like just communities where these are people that care about you and you care about them, just because, not because of any. We don't have to agree on theology. You know what I mean? Let's just get together and hang out, and I'll listen to you, and you listen to me, and we don't have to agree. yeah. And, uh, yeah. Those are the best kind. And like you know, something like like you said, it doesn't have to be even around spirituality. It could just be we get together and we you know play golf or we go hunting or we go yeah. fishing or where right. uh, we get together and you know go volunteer at the shelter or whatever. I mean, it can really be literally anything. Exactly. Uh, but we do need community. And see, that's one of the things we people lose. Um, if if you've been in the church for a long time and you deconstruct it and now you don't feel welcome or you're made to not feel welcome. Um, one way or the other, you're, you're out of that that, yeah, that you, fellowship. You definitely
1: need community. Some you kind do of community.
2: need community. We need other people. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so finding we're, running, healthy we're
1: is running out of time, Keith, but uh, this has been a great conversation. I want to ask you just one more. Uh, I'll make a statement. You, you're you in the uh, Happy Heretic podcast. There's a group of uh, really fun people. I forgot all their names, but folks, uh, check that out. On uh, That's a great podcast that Keith does um and then can you, you also quick, have can I,
2: say, can I say real quick it's the heretic yeah. heretic happy hour
1: the heretic happy hour yes okay not the happy heretic okay.
2: no, no that the there heretic. actually is another one called the her, happy heretic oh podcast.
1: there is okay yes. all right so so
2: we're, we're not we're the think of <laughs> think of happy hour right you
1: have a happy hour and you're a heretic yes. that's so the place the, to go yes <laughs> okay. it's the
2: heretics happy hour heretic happy hour
1: i got gotcha. you and then uh and then you have one called peace catalyst just briefly tell me tell us about that
2: Yeah, that's brand new. I just started that a few months ago. Um, So there's an organization called Peace Catalyst International, and my wife, Wendy, and I um, have been working with them for about a year. They specifically work to bring Christians and Muslims together over meals. Again, not to argue about who's right or wrong, but just to develop connections and friendships. Um, And initially, what we do is talk about what we have in common, which surprisingly enough to most Christians is Jesus um because muslims love jesus and the quran talks about oh, jesus and right, so yeah, right, yeah, we get okay. together and eat meals together with other muslims and um and just focus on That's in the common. el
1: paso area okay
2: yeah and well it's international it's really all over the all over the world and uh, oh, but we're okay. we're heading up the this sort of the chapter in el paso and um they right, wanted well, to do a podcast and, and i was like yeah let's do it let's do a podcast right so uh, yeah. we've been doing the podcast now for a while and it's been amazing so yeah, let's check that cool. out
1: I'll have to pick your brain about that. I'd like to get involved in that. So, well, we've ran out of time. This has been great. Thank you so much for um, joining us today. Um, uh, P- ha- Heretics Happy Hour. And is, this, is there a website for Peace Catalyst? Or?
2: Yeah, you can just go to, I think it's peacecatalyst.com.
1: Okay, and, peacecatalyst.com. Um, and then yep. just look up uh, Keith Giles, J G I L E S on Amazon find the Jesus Unbooks, and uh, they're great uh, set of books that really um, open your eyes to a lot of different things. So Keith, thank you so much again, and um, we're going to sign off, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, connect in some other way.
2: Yeah, it sounds great, Michael. Thank you so much. It's been great.
1: All right. Good luck with all your great endeavors that you're doing.
2: Thank you so much.
0: The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief, and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical the operative word being recovering sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life so grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith why do we call it a brew pub because we like to hang out in them at least metaphorically a pub is a great place to let your hair down Share your true thoughts about your journey and discuss things with an open mind in a non judgmental environment.